Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel! Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today, we're in our discussion of the Gospels. This is Gospels Part 20. Yeah. In the previous episode, we touched on highlights such as John the Baptist discussing to his disciples about the relationship between him and Messiah being compared to a bride and a bridegroom, about a... um, and the friend of the bridegroom, rather, and how the friend of the bridegroom is preparing the way for the bride to come to the groom, and John is uh, ecstatic that the bridegroom is ready to unite with his bride, and he is stepping out of the way, and he must decrease uh, so that the bridegroom may increase in this situation. We learned about how uh, the Messiah Jesus is not uh, earthly in origination, but he is heavenly uh, and that self-limiting nature of himself coming to earth uh, from those heavenly origins. Uh, we learned about things about what it means to set your seal on something with your allegiance and your obedience to the message that you are pledging your life on. And we also learned about the difference and the similarities between believing in something and obeying uh with what comes along with that and how John the writer plays into that in in verse 36 of chapter 3 about believing in the son and who not obeying in the son and now we're getting ready to go into the woman at the well oh yeah man sounds like we learned an awful lot <laughs> we haven't even started my brain hurts <laughs> yeah John is a a doozy for sure oh man and you know what this isn't going to get any better because we're about to, I mean, it's almost like story within story and it, it, there's a lot of stuff coming up. So, yeah. Well, let's get after it. Ready? Yeah. Where are we in the text? All right. We are in John chapter four. We're ready to begin in verse seven. Cool. Verse seven, a woman from Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, now we did talk about, we ended the last uh, podcast talking a little bit about Samaritans and, you know, the relationship between Jews and Samaritans and all of that. So, uh, this is uh, pretty strange that Jesus is doing this. We'll, We'll talk about that more. Uh, the thing that, let's start with this idea that the woman from Samaria, she's coming to draw water. Okay, now in modern day, we're not used to that. Here in America, we turn on a tap. Water's just there, right? But for what it's worth, just so you kind of get the picture in your head, the popular time to come out and draw water would have been more like the morning or the evening when it was cooler, right? You don't want to be out there in the heat of the day doing this kind of thing. But she is here, seems to be at like uh, the the middle part of the day. The question is, why? Now, a lot of people are already familiar with the woman at the well. That's what we always call it, right, Samuel? Absolutely. Everywhere you go, the woman at the well. So, what are some of the reasons that she might be coming out here to draw water in the middle of the day? Are you asking me that question? Yeah. Um, I mean, thinking about the time of day, it might actually be more advantageous to go at that particular time compared to others. Um, she might be going purposefully based on social interactions, like people she wants or may not want to be around. Those are just ah. a couple of things that come to mind. Yeah, it's exactly what I was hoping for. And and this all this all comes from the idea that we think that the woman at the well, I'm just going to use a, a simple kid phrase, she's a bad girl, right? <laughs> yeah. That, that's what we think. Now, just if we take that off the table for a moment, you might also think of any number of other things like, I don't know, maybe she overslept. 
maybe it was actually cloudy that day, right? I, I mean, we could probably come up with a number of other reasons for her to be out there at an odd time, but we're very naturally, and I'm not saying it's wrong, but we're very naturally going to say, oh, well, yeah, she's avoiding social interaction because, you know, nobody wants to be around her. That may or may not be true. We're going to talk more about that as we go. But here's the thing. Jesus says to her, give me a drink. I know I read it kind of silly when we were going through it a moment ago, but doesn't that come across as a little bit commanding, a little bit rude? Yeah. Yeah, it does. And there's probably a couple of things going on here. There's John, who's writing sparsely yet densely. That's a thing that's still happening here. It could also just be a cultural thing. That's, that's the way the communication went. The problem is, you know, like imagine uh, if this was today, some sort of modern time, and, and somebody was writing the story, the text from Jesus would have been something more like, uh, uh, pardon me, uh, I, I was just wondering, you, you know, if it wouldn't be too much trouble, uh, would you consider getting me a drink? Well, obviously, that's a horrible way to tell the story here in the gospel. It's super, it just doesn't fit at all. But this is all culture and storytelling. And we, I think, in some sense, need to be careful not to read our modern sensibilities into this. And we're actually going to see in a moment that she didn't. But there's another interesting point here. Now, in in my ESV that we're reading, it says that uh, it's in parentheses. Um, But John is clarifying for us that Jesus was alone with her. And we know this because the disciples had gone away to get food. And I'm just going to say, this is a little bit scandalous. So we need to hold on to that. Now, it's also possible, if you think about it this way, if you're thinking about someone who's trying to be nice, it may be important that they're alone because Jesus is also about to expose a little bit of her life history or her life story. And so, going back to what you were talking about and what we highlighted a moment ago, Samuel, she she may already be living with some kind of stigma among her own people. Maybe not. Uh, But we see Jesus interacting with her, and at least in the course of the conversation, it's going to be discreet, which is is a form of kindness. So, that's the setup. Anything with that, Samuel? You good with me? Yeah, so far, I just wanted to throw in that um, scenes of people drawing water from wells seems to be a recurring theme, theme in the Hebrew Scriptures. While you were bringing this up, I my mind was going to the story of Abraham sending his servant to find a wife for Isaac and meeting Rebekah, and uh, there's a Midrash that talks about the, the like radical hospitality that Rebecca went to water yeah. uh, Abraham's servants' camels. It, it would have involved her going like over a hundred times to draw water, and then later <laughs> Isaac he does that whole story where he continues to dig wells whenever he meets animosity with people contending after him uh, rather than responding in anger or vengeance, and so. I don't know. I'm just saying that the biblical narrative seems to place some emphasis on stories at a well concerning people's character and integrity. And it's kind of like a crossroads of determining what's going to happen when the situation is posed with people's responses. Yeah. Now that you're bringing them up, I got a bunch of them in my head. And it's, I mean, it's true. Uh, I always think about the one with Moses. Uh, another thought is, you know, pay attention. A lot of these women in the scripture, buddy, they come from hardy stock. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Yeah. All right. Yeah. So that's good. Yeah. Wells play a really important role. Uh, Let's look at verse nine. So the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So she is pointing out, the Samaritan woman is pointing out that Jesus is Jewish. Can we just let that sink in for a second? Because I'm not sure everybody all across America that, I don't think people know that. Jesus is Jewish. This is a real thing. Yeah. And 
you know, um, we've already talked about how many times John is using the word Jew or Jews and whatever, and sometimes it appears to be in a bad light, they're the bad guys or whatever. But he's, you know, Jesus is being called a Jew. He's never correcting her because it's obviously true, right? That kind of thing. But notice what she says. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink? And we just said, man, it sounded to us like he was being kind of commanding and rude, right? Hmm. But but she didn't take it that way. She, you know, he's just asking for a drink. No big deal. But here's the important part. Again, I know we've talked about it some. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. She was surprised. Anybody would have been surprised. Jews don't talk to Samaritans, let alone ask for a drink of water. In fact, conversation between unmarried sexes wasn't popular either. I mean, husbands and wives can talk to each other all they want, but you don't talk to somebody other than your spouse, right? It was, it just wasn't done. It wasn't very popular. Mm -hmm. And so, it, we continue with the borderline scandalous stuff going on. But anyway, she's like, well, what are you doing asking me for a drink? You're a Jew. So Jesus answers in verse 10. He says, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Okay. Now, Samuel, this is, a, this is kind of a hard one. When he says, if you knew the gift of God, what the heck is he referring to? I don't know. I mean, I mean, usually when I hear things like gift of God, it is concerning salvation. But that seems kind yeah. of odd in this circumstance, this situation, this scenario. Yeah, yeah. And, and in a weird way, he seems to be distinguishing it from himself. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying this, right? It's almost like those are two different things. So, I mean, the obvious ones, you would go, oh, the gift of God. Well, is that Jesus? Uh, I don't know, maybe. Salvation? Uh, I don't know, maybe. Uh, is it the water that he was, the living water that he was going to offer? Uh, maybe. It's really hard to know. That's, a, that's a, an odd little part of the sentence right there. And in a way, maybe it was, you know, difficult to understand in the moment at the time, and, and maybe in hindsight we can look back and say, well, in, there's a sense in which it's kind of all of those things all at once. But anyway, we know Jesus is the Messiah. He's sent to save all mankind from death, and he is, therefore, uh, you could look at him as the source of, of purity, that purity that is needed to be in eternal relationship with God, like in his presence, you need that uh, purity. And so he is, in a sense, that living water. Uh, that could be the gift. I don't know. This is a hard one, though. John, John's, he's going to throw a few curveballs at us as we keep going. But what else we got? Uh, had she known who he was, like, like if, she, if she understood everything that we just talked about, she definitely would have been the one saying, what do you mean give you a drink? You give me a drink. I need it more than you need. You know what I'm saying? She would have said that. But this living water, now there, there's a couple things about this. Number one, let's talk about just the, the natural practical sense. We've talked about it before. What are some examples of some living water, Samuel? A stream or a river. Uh, a, yeah. a naturally occurring cistern from underground, uh, sure. rain, yeah. it, like rainwater. Yeah. Basically, it's rain. Rain or freshwater springs. Those are like the real sources. Those are the things that Jews would have looked on and said, yep, those are directly from God. Now, of course, the streams, and you know, that's collecting the runoff and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, those make sense for sure. But the reason that living water was important was what, Samuel? Well, the people receiving rain are wholly dependent on it. Like, they have no control on whether they receive living water or not. True. Yeah, that's very, very true. And so it has to come directly from God. And this living water was used for, like, purity rituals. 
And, and so it had a very uh, important role just in the daily cultural life of the Jews and, in some sense, the Samaritans as well, because they, they were kind of similar to the Jews in, in a number of ways. And just so you know, you could, in some ways you were allowed to collect some of this living water. There were different ways to do that, but this is important. A well did not qualify as living water. So, you got this Samaritan woman. She probably understands this term, you know, like in the detailed level that, that we're talking about. And so, already, here's a really, really important clue for her that Jesus is talking about something that's different. She knows that this well isn't living water. He's offering living water. And so, what, what is it this, that he could be offering? And she's probably not going to make the connection that, you know, he's God at this point. That would be way too soon. Um, so maybe she's maybe she is thinking of something spiritual, whatever. We don't know. We, we're going to have to see. But I got to tell you, he says, give me a drink. She's like, well, what are you asking me for a drink for? You're, you're Jew. I'm Samaritan. What are you doing that for? And then he goes off on this thing about... Well, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for water, and it's living water and all this. Jesus isn't easy to have a conversation with, Samuel. No, he's not. And, I mean, to be fair, we're also seeing a little bit of John's storytelling technique possibly coming through because he's bringing a little bit of confusion so that it could be followed with an explanation. But this is hard. Now, let's, let's just see how she deals with this, though. We get down to verse 11. He said, the woman said to him, Sir... You have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Now, you remember, how did this all start? This all started with him asking for water. And she's like, well, what? You started this. You asked for water. Now you're offering me water. What, what's going on? And then, you know, she's wondering, where are you going to get this water? And specifically, she repeats it back. Where are you going to get that living water? And then she's, she's trying to say, look, our father Jacob, he was great. He created the well. He drank from it himself. His sons did. His livestock did. Jacob is great. We've been using this thing for centuries. Are you telling me that you're somehow greater than Jacob? You're going to give me something different and better than what we've got right here in front of us, right here? And again, it's hard to tell. Is she pushing back like, hey, you're bugging me. You're not making sense. I don't really want to be talking to you. Is she is she questioning because she recognizes uh, I don't know exactly what this guy's talking about, but there's something here and, and I need to keep, I need to continue this conversation because I've got to see what it is this guy is bringing to the table, you know, that kind of thing. And you may even think she might be wondering if it's something supernatural because she knows that he's not making any natural sense, Right. But no matter, how you, no matter how you slice it, okay, again, there's this woman, we don't know a lot about her yet, but she's pretty tough. Yeah, she's hanging in there. Yeah, she's not really, I mean, you know, she doesn't know who this guy is, and he's talking to her, probably shouldn't be, all of this, and she's, you know, she's, she's not taking any, anything. She's just pushing right back. John's storytelling, again, she plays the role of, you know, kind of leaning toward the literal, and Jesus is talking about something different, something greater, but I'm not sure how literally we should be taking it, because John's, you know, he's setting us up. He's, he's trying to drive us through the rest of the story. Or it could just be, this is exactly the exchange of words that happened between Jesus and this woman, and, I, you know, Jesus is just a, he's a tough cookie to talk with. I don't know. Uh, let's keep going. Jesus says this. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water 
that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Can you even imagine being this woman, Samuel? (laughs) Yeah, it seems like everything is coming out of left field. All she did was go out in the middle of the day to get some water, possibly even going for the purpose of avoiding contact with other people. She runs into this guy who's like, hey, give me a drink. Ha ha, you should have asked me. And oh, I've got special water. <laughs> it's In fact, it's so special, you'll never be thirsty and it'll become a spring within you. She's got to be going, what is this guy talking about, right? But it's also, if if she was kind of drawn in, wondering, where is this guy going with this? What What is it? If she had any interest at all, he's, he's actually starting to bring some explanation. So the water from this well, and let's just be clear about it, it's, you know, just plain water. Living water was for purity, but remember, that's just like an external thing, a physical body kind of thing. But Jesus is talking about something different. This spiritual living water, well, that would be for purifying the soul, something internal. And because it was spiritual living water, not only does it satisfy your thirst permanently, but it also becomes a new spring of water within you. Now, that may sound kind of crazy, and I don't know what the Samaritans know or don't know. That's a little bit harder to figure out. But it's important that we do know this. This whole little concept that Jesus is talking about right now, he didn't make that up. No, he did not. It already existed in Jewish thought. And we don't know, but maybe in Samaritan, Samaritan thought as well. So, This is a really important thing to see. Even though the conversation sounds weird and strange and Jesus is just talking about things out of left field, he is talking about things that were already sort of in the the common line of thinking, at least for Jews. It's harder to know about that Samaritan woman, but this is what he's talking about. So, I mean, this is good news because now we're getting somewhere, right? Yeah, I love the, the Hebrew name for living water. Do you remember what that is? Uh, is it uh, Mayim? Ma- Mayim Kaim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, this is good. So here's the thing. What we know is that God is the source of living water. Now, we know that that's true in the practical sense, like rain or whatever, right? But... It's also true in what we might think of as a spiritual sense. So uh, just to show what we're talking about, uh, Samuel, read from Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13. Mm -hmm. There, at least that little snippet. Yeah. For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. There you go. It's as easy as pie, right? (laughs) The Lord, the fountain of living water. Israelite history had taught them this. And this kind of, you've already mentioned this. This is cool that it's coming up now. So remember when all of Israel was uh, in bondage in Egypt? They're slaves, right? Mm-hmm. What kind of water did they have to depend on there, Samuel? Uh, completely on rainwater. Well, actually, no. Oh, no, you're talking about in Egypt. Yeah. The Nile. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, funny thing about Egypt, there wasn't all that much rain. At least... The, 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 what we understand, the, the way we understand the cycle and all that in this time, they didn't get a lot of rain, but the Nile took care of everything. And I don't know, do you remember where Israel was living there in Egypt, Samuel? Um, weren't they living within the Nile River Delta? Yeah, they were in Goshen. And I mean, if you, if you were to look on a map, it's just solid green, beautiful, yeah. awesome green. They never had to worry about water at all in Egypt. But then God rescues them. <laughs> and okay, they spend 40 years in the desert. That's pretty obvious. But even in Israel, there just wasn't a lot of water anywhere 
ever. And they, they depended solely on God for the seasonal rains. Yeah, if you Google search Nile River Delta, just <laughs> outside of the, the floodplain of the Nile River, it goes from stark green to stark brown yeah. almost instantly. Yeah. Well, we've even seen photos. Like, there's literally a line. Yeah. There's all this, you know, green grass, this, that, whatever, growing at one point, and then the very next inch, it's just sandy dirt, whatever. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So here you see God, obviously, through the rains, he's providing the, the, the living water. And so that was their example. They could see and understand. They went from having this abundance to, to being completely dependent on God. So he was the source of living water in the natural, but he's also a source of living water spiritually. Now, remember in the, in the kingdom, we know that the promise is all about abundance and all of this stuff. But in the here and now, especially for Jews in the first century or whatever, in the here and now, God prefers dependence on him. He would prefer us to not live so much in abundance. And, and I, I, we'll talk about that more as we go, but there's reasons for that. I think just the simple one, abundance makes you complacent even in your relationship with God. Mm-hmm. But uh, here's another thing. So we're still talking about living water. Living water is associated with the spirit. So now this is going to help us try to, try to piece this together. Samuel, if you could read from Isaiah 44, verses three and four. Mm-hmm. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. Yeah. And there you see it. I mean, the connection is so clear because he's talking about water and what it will do to the thirsty land, the dry ground. And he's, he's equating that with the Spirit when you pour the Spirit on your offspring and how they will grow or be blessed or, you know, whatever, that kind of thing. So great connection there. Here's another one just for fun. Joel chapter 2, verses 23 to 29. I've kind of got a couple snippets because that's a long section. But basically in there, you're going to see that it starts out with the return of the rains and then it ends with the pouring out of the spirit. So it's, it, again, it's, it's uh, making an equation between that living water and the spirit, right? So read those little bits, Samuel. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain, as before. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. Woo! For a second there, I thought you were reading from the New Testament. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's... But see, again, what we're looking at is living water being associated with the Spirit, and that's, a, that's an important image to see, especially when we talk about this idea that if you have this living water welling up in you and, and pouring out to those all around you, right, it's, it's a cool picture. And we're even going to see... This is a cool story, and I can already guess what you're going to talk about, but we're going to do it anyway. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Jesus later, he connects living water with the Spirit. And so we're, we're zipping ahead to John chapter 7. It's, it's at the end of the festival of Sukkot. It's the Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths, whatever. But Jesus talks in John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39. Why don't you read that little bit, Samuel? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, quote, Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Yeah. Now, before you add your little tidbit there, which I know is coming, (laughs) notice that, that John explicitly tells us Jesus is talking about water, and John says, yeah, he was talking about the Spirit. Mm-hmm. So, so that they could see and understand that. And it's important uh, for our conversation here, but I've cued you up, Samuel. Lay it on us. <laughs> I'm in- interested to see whether you get this right, but what came to mind when, you, when I saw this cross-reference in your notes is that in the festival of Sukkot, there is a tradition where one of the priests in the either the tabernacle or the temple later on would have a pitcher of that living water and he would be praying over like the people, the land, the nation. And he would, it it would almost be this display, this picture, this image of him pouring the water out and commending to God, like, may you bless us again with living water for the upcoming year because we wholly depend on you. And the shocking thing is that if in this passage in John, if it is in the Feast of Sukkot and Jesus is observing that, it's like this moment where the priest is walking up, it's, it's solemn, it's silent, and then Jesus stands up and he like proclaims this great thing about how he is connected with the living water <laughs> in this spiritual way. And it would be yeah. like this, you would hear every cricket chirp, you would hear every glass shatter, it would just be just like deafening in the yeah. temple. Yeah, it's an awesome picture that we usually don't see because we're not familiar with Festival of Sukkot, who's doing what, where, when. But Samuel, I got to tell you, I'm not surprised. You were right. Even as I was writing some of my commentary here, I knew that this was coming. (laughs) (laughs) You know me too well. Well, that's a great story, though. It is. But again, again, the, the point, though. What we're talking about is the living water and how it's associated with the Spirit and what it is that Jesus is telling this woman and all of that kind of thing, right? Uh, And so finally, just remember, this water, Jesus says that it's going to well up in us. It's not just going to fill us, but it's going to overflow to those around. And, you know, there's actually two, I don't know, directions or paths or or whatever that this is going to follow. One you might think of evangelism, the, the idea of what we would call bringing people into the kingdom. Oh, that's a real thing. The other one, I think, would be uh, loving our neighbor, which I, I think those two are, you know, pretty closely intertwined. But loving your neighbor, you, you know, you're not thinking to yourself, I've got to tell them about Jesus. You're thinking, I need to do this or do that or whatever. But that's how that, that water, the Spirit, wells up in us, right? So, so if your salvation, any of us, if, if our salvation, and that is our drink of the living water, if it stops with you, well, then there's something wrong with your salvation. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, I mean, here we are. We're, we're talking to this woman at the well and and already we've got this this big thing this big story about give me a drink and water and living water and all of this stuff i mean this is deep deep stuff the well is deep but what we're learning is deep you know what i'm saying heck yeah and then i mean you gotta wonder boy is is i mean let's let's also review something really quickly this is an extremely patriarchal society. And I know women knew some stuff. It's not like they didn't, but this is this is a lot of deep stuff and she's not even Jewish, she's Samaritan. Mm-hmm. So all of this is Jesus is requiring a lot of her. Yeah. And so in verse 15, I'll let, well just let me read it. The woman said to him, "Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty." Or have to come here and draw water. And then you got to wonder, is she being serious or is she being sarcastic? I mean, is it something like, 
Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, that sounds good. Uh, why don't you give me some of that water so that I'm not thirsty? Or, uh, hey, I won't even have to come here and draw water anymore. Thanks a lot, dude. I mean, could she be? It's it's hard to tell because this this weird interaction has been going on. And Jesus's response right back to her is also going to turn out, well, I shouldn't say also, it's going to turn out to be pretty pretty uh sharp, pretty pretty uh pointed maybe, I could say. And so you don't know did did she egg it on because she was kind of getting snarky with him? Or is this just, you know, Jesus changing the subject cuz that's what he does and you know, that's how conversations go with? It? I don't know. But we're we're just going to have to say either way, I'm I'm not we're not positive yet that uh, she's really following what Jesus is saying. She she seems to be kind of stuck on on the literal idea of water. It, it sort of it reaches an end here, and this is kind of where it's left. That it, this whole thing about the water just kind of dies right here. So we get to verse sixteen, and this is where Jesus, you know, kind of kind of pushes back a little bit. He says, uh, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. All right, now here's where everybody gets the idea that she was a, you know, bad girl. Generally, I think all of us tend to paint this woman like, you know, she's there's something wrong with her. And and after all, at a minimum, she's currently with a man who is not her husband. Well, nobody's going to argue that that's not okay or is you know what I'm saying? That it nobody's saying that's okay. But the rest of it 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 starts to raise raise some questions for me. Number one, that this Greek word, okay, it's already trouble. It could be husband, or it could simply be man. And so, you know, you're reading this context, and I mean, there are some places where it's obviously husband. Should it always say husband? Should it maybe say man at some point? It should they all say man? But it, so even with the word alone, we get a little bit of confusion. And, you know, maybe we can see some sort of meaning in that or whatever. I don't know. Um, it's hard to tell. But the, just the idea of having five husbands, how does a woman get into that circumstance? I mean, Jews of this day, first century, some of them, they, I mean, they actually had a rule. You, you can't have any more than three husbands. If you go through three, you're done. Now, not all Jews felt that that was a thing, but some did. And then, again, she's Samaritan. Does their society hold to that or not? I, we, we don't know. But then, notice, she never said that the one she has now was a husband. And Jesus agreed with that. So that one is easy. And that one is definitely trouble all by itself. But here's the thing. So what about the first five? Were they legitimate or illegitimate? I mean, did she experience five deaths? I mean, was she a widow five times over? Or did she actually go through five divorces? Because in this society, it's not like she had a whole lot of say about it. Five men could have divorced her, and she's like, yeah, here I am again. And then you have to wonder, how crazy were husbands number two through five? You know what I'm saying? I, I don't know. That's where, or or was it something illegitimate, right? And and it still could have been divorce, but was it because she was committing adultery or some some something like that? We don't know. But here's the thing: is it actually okay to take her current circumstance, the fact that she's with a man who is not her husband? Is it fair for us to put that back on the first five? Notice Jesus doesn't say. For you have had five previous men who were not your husband. Mm. He just says, you have had five husbands. 
So, I mean, for sure, is it possible that that it's all, yeah, it could all be bad, but I think we need to be careful not to jump too quickly and too far with that. I mean, think about it. it. What if she really did have five husbands and they were all legitimate? What is her life even like right now? What, what, what opportunities does she even have? She may be simply doing whatever it is she needs to do to survive. That's why she's with a man who's not her husband. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Is there any possibility as well? I know that you had said that the potential illegitimacy of these previous relationships, is there a possibility that the illegitimacy could have been on the husband's part in terms of the the husband committing adultery? I, I don't know. I'm not f- super familiar with the Jewish law with the woman's grounds for divorce if the husband commits adultery. But you had mentioned before about her living in a patriarchal society, and that yeah. includes this reality of a woman depending on a man to be the provider and yeah. the caretaker and the protector of her and her children and you know the, the entire establishment of family, land, livestock. And so my mind is going to a picture of like maybe it is a form of survival that she's been treated wrongly time after time and she's you know going back to another relationship because she needs security and needs dependence and then by the fifth one she's like i don't know if i can take the commitment you know hurting me in this way anymore and she has yet to follow through in marriage i don't know yeah, it's difficult to know exactly what it was like for her, again, because she's Samaritan, not not uh, Jewish. But definitely in that time period, generally, she would have had very few options with regard to divorce. Gotcha. You know, so that's a difficult thing. And now, what's important about this is, don't hear me saying, hey, this woman was great. You've totally misunderstood her. Well, I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is, just like we saw with Nicodemus, you know, he wasn't this bumbling fool who just couldn't understand Jesus talking about what it means to be born again. Ha, ha, ha. He actually turned out to be a really smart guy, and that conversation was really, really deep. Well, maybe this woman, maybe it isn't as simple as she was just a bad girl. Maybe there's something much more complex about her. As we continue through the story, I'm going to try to keep pointing that out because I'm not saying, you know, totally drop your view of her because I know something better. I'm just saying, hey, why don't you back off a little bit? Why don't you leave some room to see if we can just see something more about her? I mean, here's another example, Samuel. Tell me how old she is. I have no idea. Right. Nobody does. She could be in her 30s. Or she could be in her 60s or something, right? We have no idea. It's, a, it's just a difficult thing. It's a difficult thing, uh, and, and we're going to point that out as we go. We're looking for the complexity of the characters, looking for some things that maybe we wouldn't normally see because it may help us. And here's the first one. So here's Jesus. He's laid this on her. Call your husband. Uh, I don't have one. Yeah, you're right. You've had five, but you're one. You're, now you don't have one. You know, whatever. Her response, okay, we always, we always want to look at this like, oh, she's recognizing how awesome he is, and, you know, he's, he's touched on her, her iniquity, and, and, you know, she's changed or whatever. Yeah, well, let's read this. Verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Uh, not really feeling the contrition in there. You, Samuel? No. (laughs) No. Okay, so she says, well, okay, first of all, let's continue that point. She didn't say anything to defend or explain or even to somehow uh, suggest that she has been somehow, you know, deeply touched you know, cut to the core by his words or any of that kind of stuff. Her response is simply, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, maybe she's trying to change the subject. She doesn't want to talk about it. Or maybe 
it's because she's not bothered by anything he said at all. Maybe it's for her, it's right up there with, hey, Simon, uh, I'm going to call you, you know, Peter, the the rock, or uh, Nathaniel, I saw you under a tree, you know, that kind of thing. To her, it's just, no way. How did you know that about my life? That's crazy. You must be a prophet. Again, I'm not saying I know something different about her than you do, but I find this very interesting that she doesn't feel even the slightest need to respond. All she sees is, wow, you know something that you shouldn't ought to know. You must be a prophet. And then, as if that wasn't enough, talk about changing the subject so fast it like makes your head spin. She doesn't even seem to care about whatever it was he just said other than, you know, hey, you must be a prophet. Her interest immediately switches to a matter of worship. Well, if you're a prophet, maybe you can tell me the answer to this question Mm. about worship. Well, what kind of woman in the first century patriarchal society is sitting around just waiting for someone to come along and answer her question about worship? That's kind of weird, right? It's odd. Who is this woman? Is she really just a bad girl from town? <laughs> it's, it's very weird. So, if she's really convinced that he's a prophet, and if, if he really was trying to say something that was supposed to, you know, convict her of lifelong sin and all this kind of thing, well, there's no way that her response makes any sense. I mean, wouldn't she do something more like, oh, I am undone, or woe is me, or you know what I'm saying? Something. She doesn't do anything like that. As soon as she recognizes he's a prophet, boom, I've got a question for her. You've got to tell me what is true. <laughs> now, again, to be fair, maybe this is just her way of changing the subject, deflecting, getting, getting him off the topic, but then you got to, there's a couple things about that. You got to go, okay, right, because that was really going to work on Jesus, except it did. That's what we're going to see next. He goes with her on this change of topic. And just for clarification, the thing that she is addressing to Jesus is this discrepancy on the location of worship that yes. she said that her descendants worshiped on this physical location in the region of Samaria, Samaria. But Jesus is saying that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship based on his faith. Yeah. And that's what's coming up next. And that's the, the big argument between Samaritans and Jews. Okay. Right. Or one of the big arguments, right? Yeah. That's exactly what, what she's wanting to know about. And so I'm, again, I'm just saying, maybe she's a little more complex than we've given her credit for. So, I don't know. Let's, uh, let's see what he says to her. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We Worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Whoa. I don't even know if we're going to be able to get through this in a single <laughs> podcast. So much was That's in here, really, right? Yeah. All right. So again, let's, let's lay this out. Jesus, he actually goes along with her change of subject, which means he didn't press the issue about, you know, any of her need, her sin, or any of that kind of stuff. So again, that sort of adds to the questions that we're raising here. But he says this, an hour is coming. Well, obviously, that speaks of the future. Fair enough? Yeah. But it has no definite 
target of any kind. And so what could he be talking about? The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. Well, since the question is around geographic location, this mountain versus that mountain, okay, if that's our context, we're going to say that at a minimum, this is Jesus here likely speaking of, predicting the fall of the temple. Now, we can easily go further. You know, we might look back and, and say things like, oh, well, yeah, but this is also talking about, you know, after this, the uh, his uh, death on the cross and the resurrection, the Gentile inclusion, all of those things. Yes, 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 all of those things. But at least in the immediate context right here, talking about the fall of the temple and people were not able to worship in either location. And so that gets us to, I think, a very important point. True worship, technically, it doesn't depend on location. And to be even more clear, it never did. Now, we do have the Jews. They are in covenant. They've been given very specific instructions for how they worship. That's true. But that doesn't negate the idea that sort of the, the, the greater truth that your worship doesn't depend on your location. It's more about the state of the worshiper, not so much as location, not so much as ethnicity. And just to, to talk about this, this is actually going to speak a little bit forward, like into Gentile inclusion, that kind of stuff. But these are good. Let's read these, Samuel. Um, Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 11. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth and to him shall bow down, each in its place, all the lands of the nations. Everybody's going to bow down all over the world. How about another one? Malachi chapter 1 verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And there it is again. That just that that idea, these men, I don't know if you noticed, those are Old Testament scriptures. It's it's expected that the story is expected to somehow reach a, a time, a place, or whatever, when people all over are worshiping. Now, of course, we can look to the kingdom and the world to come, that's easy, but that also speaks to our time. Now, after his resurrection, the Gentile inclusion. So it's all, it's, it's, it's all in there, right? Yeah. He adds a bit about you worship what you don't know. Now, um, to be clear, okay, given the question that she asked, Jesus is obviously coming down on the side of the Jews. But Jesus, he, he's, he's already talked about the location of worship, and now he's going to try to do a little twisto change-o here. Jesus is moving from the location to the object of worship. The Samaritans didn't really have a good grasp of God. And the reason, and we talked a little bit about it before, is because their understanding was so garbled by the foreign influence, uh, most most, uh, specifically the Assyrian influence. See, the Jews, they had the scriptures, they had the history, they had all of this good knowledge, you know, uh, and I, I don't know, I even think of it like momentum, working with them. They had plenty of shortcomings, to be sure, but the, the, the Samaritans had, they'd lost a lot of that, it'd gotten messed up. And the, that other phrase, salvation is from the Jews. Well, how does that work? In, in, uh, in what way, Samuel, can we see salvation coming from the Jews? Oh, I know that the nation of Israel was commissioned to be a kingdom of priests yeah. and to be a light and an example to the rest of the nations who are who were and are living in darkness so that they might come to revelation and knowledge of who the one true creator God is through their lives. Yeah, that's a good example. Uh, another one is, well, to what nation on earth was the Messiah born? Well, the nation of Israel. Yeah. The Jews, so salvation through Messiah comes from the Jews. But even more than that, and this is something that we we often don't hear like in our American churches, Israel remains the conduit through which salvation comes. 
And so when we talk about Gentile inclusion, and if you read the letters of Paul carefully, you're going to see this all over the place. Gentiles aren't replacing the Jews. It's not like us instead of them. And it's certainly not us alongside them as if there are two paths, right? Nothing like that. Gentiles are grafted in. We become, in a sense, spiritually, by faith, we become Israel. Now, we don't live as Jews. We don't have the same covenant as them, right? All that. But salvation is from the Jews, and maybe a better way to say it is salvation is through the Jews. Uh, So that's a big thing. What else does he say in here that we can point out? Oh, here's one. The hour is coming and is now here. Now, wait a second. The hour is coming. What did we say that pointed to, Samuel? The future. And the phrase, and is now here. When, when is that? <laughs> Seems like the present. Yeah. And I'm just going to say it. This is an example of Jesus saying what you're going to hear us say over and over. We're going to talk about the kingdom and the world to come. We're going to talk about the now and the not yet. The hour is coming and is now here. And, and so if you get tired of us saying it, just remember Jesus started it. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. But he is speaking of the messianic age and, the, and that we can worship in spirit and truth. And this is the important part. This, I mean, there's another phrase you'll hear us say a lot. It's like a, a foretaste of the kingdom. It's like we can reach out and, and grab a little bit of the kingdom and bring it into the here and now through our righteous living right? Worshiping in spirit and truth. Ah, awesome picture. Uh, What else does he talk about? The hour's coming now here when true worshipers will worship the Father. Well, what's a true worshiper? And could we just say, do you remember who Jesus is talking to? (laughs) The Samaritan woman. A Samaritan woman in the middle of the day getting water at a well. It's crazy. Now, is it possible that John is kind of infusing this story a little bit with his own? I, I don't know. Maybe. Or maybe maybe she's getting it. Either way, the original context in this conversation, it, remember, it started with, where do we worship? And he went through location. He went through the object of worship. And now we see him emphasizing that authentic worship, it's, it's about the heart of the worshiper. It, the, the, the worshiper must be true. And, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. Let's, uh, th- there's another couple of phrases here because he says that they have to worship in spirit and truth. So what does it mean to worship in spirit? Okay, so true worshipers, they worship in spirit. It's an inward thing. It's, it's the heart, the mind, you could even say your spirit, uh, but it's, it's set in opposition to the outward thing, something that's done at a location, something that maybe revolves around ritual alone. I'm not saying that those things are bad. I'm saying Jesus is, he's, he's uh, bringing to light this idea that even in the midst of following rules about location and rituals and all that, it's still important that the inward thing is there. And you might even think of it, if you understand yourself to have an eternal spirit, you might think of this as allowing your eternal spirit to have its purpose fulfilled in us. When you're born of the spirit, born from above, then your eternal spirit is able to pursue the right way of living, if I could say it that way. Mm-hmm. But it, so, so it's in spirit and in truth. And just to say it, a lot of times when we hear truth, we think about, you know, like true, false, right, wrong. Uh, that's not really the sense that we're talking about here. To worship in spirit and truth, in truth is about sincerity and firmness, trustworthiness, faithfulness. It's going to manifest in righteous behavior. That is just going to be a natural consequence. And so you can see that it's permeating us inside and out. And so a true worshiper is one whose heart and mind is set on him and 
he begins to walk out his life, or he continues to walk out his life in sincerity and firmness and trustworthiness and faithfulness, that is the worshiping in spirit and truth. So it's, oh, God is spirit, and so we have to, we have to meet him on that plane. We are natural, created beings, but our worship has to transcend that. <laughs> it's a great picture. Yeah. I'm not sure where we are on the timetable, but there's so many things that I wanted to respond to that what you said here. So you you tell me on whether we need to cut it short or whether I can respond to a few of these things that are amazing. You may as well go ahead because we'll forget it for the next episode. (laughs) All right. The first thing when you were talking about that picture of salvation being from the Jews um, and the whole Gentile inclusion thing, not replacing I was thinking in that moment, I think adoption is a really good picture for that. Um, think about a child, it can even be, you know, an infant or some an older child. Um, in the situation that they were in before being adopted, you could say that they're in bondage or oppression, however you want to think about them. And then the family that does the adoption is, is in some sense saving that child from that previous reality that they are living in yeah. and takes on the name of that family. So, And oh, you could yeah. even think about multiracial adoptions. Like There is a distinctiveness between the, the family of one skin color and the adopted child of the other. But in that sense, that child is as part of every sense of that family's name and what they represent as if they came from their own womb and so i think that personally i think that that does a really good job of explaining what it means to be grafted into the nation of israel yes we keep our gentile qualities ethnically but we are walking into what it means to live under the banner and the qualities of the israel people and their god that you know has transcended time and the narrative uh, with humanity. Yeah, we join into the chosen mm-hmm. people. Awesome. Yeah, that's a good picture, Samuel. Another thing you had said, authentic worship is about the heart of the worshiper. I really love it when Bible translations leave a footnote when they're referencing the heart. The ones I've read in the past down at the bottom, they'll say that heart literally means the kidneys. I think that does a really good job of kind of the where giving you an idea of where Jewish people thought the uh, the heart was connected to. Like if you ever get that sense of you have this deep conviction about something, something that you know that you need to do or something that you desire that you know is right uh, to make right, you can almost feel that sense down in your kidneys. And I think that that's kind of what the wordplay is getting at with your heart represents the connection between your emotions and your will and how that translates into appropriate action. And so I just wanted to throw that out there that that always is kind of a refreshing take on the heart of the worshiper. Yeah, that's good. And then uh, um, another thing um, I just wanted to go back to living water really quickly. You had mentioned cross reference in Jeremiah 17, um, I want this is just like two two or three verses, but I think it does an incredible job of describing what it looks like for someone who is not living and uh, connecting to living water and one who is. This is in Jeremiah seventeen verses five, six, uh, seven, and eight. Um, in Jeremiah, it says, Thus says the Lord, so this is the person who does not have living water. Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. This is the imagery. Verse 6, He will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony waste in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitants. And then this is verse 7 and 8 is the person who is living in living water. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord, for he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. And in saying all those things, I'm also going to connect a episode of the Bama Discipleship Podcast. We'll put it in the show notes. 
But this idea of living water that you said, it's not an original concept that Jesus has uh, somehow come up with in the New Testament, something that God has been commissioning his people from the beginning. And Marty Solomon in that podcast does a really good job of saying that God is calling his people to be an oasis to people in the world who are living currently in their own desert. And so God was to be their oasis while they were in the desert. And so now, like now that you know that story, God is saying, okay, now that you know what it looks like to practice radical hospitality, to practice self-sacrifice rather than, you know, self-indulgence, go be that for other people, elevate them and in their hardship so that they might experience my oasis. So I just said a lot, but I just, I had to vomit it out there. (laughs) Oh, it's all good. It's all good. Yeah, we'll we'll be sure to get that link in. Yeah, this is, I mean, I, I really actually did think we'd do more verses today, but there's just so much. It, it's that same story with John. On one hand, it seems sparse, and then you start talking about it, and the next thing you know, you find out it's super dense. There's just so much here. Yeah. Anyway, that's I'm not, all we got. I'm not upset about going slow. This is really good stuff. Yeah, yeah. There's no There's no reason for us to hurry through anything. We are, yeah, we're a little longer than we would normally go. We should probably stop. <laughs> Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to the Okie Dokie Most podcast. Please don't forget to hit that subscribe button so that you are notified when our episodes release on Sunday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time so that you never miss an episode. Our podcast is now available on all podcasting platforms, so make sure you check us out on your electronic device. You can also visit our official website at www.okidokimos.com for more information or to listen online. And finally, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. Until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.